Welcome, everyone. Is anyone here for the very first time? Fair number of you. Of those of you who just raised your hands who are here for the first time, are you also new to insight meditation? If you could you raise your hand? Before we talk things over together, see what's on your mind, a short teaching. I think it's appropriate uh, for days like this, perhaps not up here, but at some point we'll all walk down from here into the heat. In the monasteries in Asia, to this day, I mean, with there may be exceptions, but I don't know them. There's no central heating and there's no air conditioning. Uh, I've been in places where they could have it and they don't want it. They turn it down. It's just woven into the practice. I'm not saying that's superior or inferior. It's just true. So it's been that way since ancient times. And in ancient China, uh, it's a famous exchange so famous that some of you have heard me say it every summer. Maybe I'm the one who made it famous. No one else ever heard of it. Um, a student comes to a teacher and says that, uh, how do you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? Because that's much of the year spent that way. So the teacher says, get to that place where there's no hot and there's no cold. The student says, how do you get to the place where there's no hot and no cold? And the teacher says, kill hot, kill cold. What in the world are they talking about? I thought Buddhism is supposed to be the most pacific religion, orientation towards living. And here's this teacher encouraging kill hot, kill cold. And how would you do that anyway? Over the centuries, many commentaries have developed about what this means. Uh, the essence of it is really quite a simple and very, very practical teaching. I've used it for many, many years. It's been extraordinarily helpful. Obviously, you can't kill hot and you can't kill cold, but you can kill the concept hot and the concept cold. In other words, there's an objective temperature outside. It's whatever, 90-something. And the body is subject to certain laws and will respond to hot in a certain way and cold in another way. But then the mind gets in and starts to tell you what's happening. And as soon as it comes up with the term hot, it's soon followed by, oh my God, when is this going to end? Uh, it's reinforced by the, the weather people in the mornings and all throughout the day as if World War III is on the way. It's just hot. Is that significant? I don't know. <laughs> um, so that if you, uh, if you look at your experience, it's always now. Practice is saying that in endless numbers of ways. 
It's always now. There's no, there's no other place or time now. And in this particular now, it's either going to, it's going to be a certain temperature. And sometimes that temperature will be, for right now, hot. So the body will have its reaction. It could be very uncomfortable. You could be sweating. But then once the mind gets into it, it makes hot. It makes cold. And then you ha can have anguish, torment, despair, and a huge uh, wastage of energy, not to mention the fact that now it really gets hot. Because once the mind has decided that it's hot, then it's the mind plus the temperature, which you throw into the blender and that what comes out is a problem. I have a problem. So that, how do you practice and how do you kill hot and kill cold? Um, one of the commentaries over the centuries was, when it's hot, the Buddha sweats. When it's cold, the Buddha shivers. It's as simple as that. Buddha or no Buddha, all of us sweat and shiver. The point is that the Buddha just shivers and just sweats, period, full stop. What happens to us when we don't understand our minds too well is that the heat gets picked up on and elaborated upon by the mind and it's turned into, can be turned into a melodrama. Uh, and I can hear someone thinking right now, I have the answer to that, it's simple, for God's sakes, buy an air conditioner. <laughs> well, even if you buy an air conditioner, are you going to carry it on your back? I think there are some now. <laughs> there are portable fans or something, they kind of follow you around. Uh, we'll do anything for comfort. Uh, I was in a friend's home the other night, and uh, there were four or five of us, and the husband phoned in. He was 20 minutes away, and he said, uh, have you put the air conditioner on yet? Because his wife uh, seemed to be less likely to turn on the air conditioner than he would. And he was already concerned about what he was coming home to. He said, if I leave it up to you, it'll be just like coming into a sauna bath. So the air conditioner got turned on. So you can see there's uh, a lot that's going on over and above the temperature. Now, literally, how do you practice with it? Let's say you heard what I said and you got it. It's not, you don't have to sit on a cushion to understand what I just said, those of you who are really new. It's kind of common sense. Nonetheless, suddenly we find ourselves sweating or shivering. And awareness has this ability to know what's happening. And so with practice, you can tell the difference between just the physical sensations that come about when we're hot or when we're cold. And then you, with practice, you can discern the difference between that and the story that the mind is capable of making up about what is happening. Now, we've been doing this all our life, so it's unexamined. Once you start to examine it, the story part starts to lose its power. You still sweat like everyone else. But it isn't, uh, there's less whining about it. And finally, there can be no whining. I mean, what good does the whining do? Just ups the temperature a little bit. Um, I was asked this, it was a koan, and in one monastery I practiced that. Uh, you come in, you're given a challenge, something like this. How do you kill hot? How do you kill cold? I just gave you the answer, but that's not the real answer. You have to answer it from uh, your personal experience. And when you answer it incorrectly, the teacher rings the bell, and then that means you're dismissed. You're out. And this was going on over and over again. It was a, a, a week-long retreat. 
I just couldn't get it right. Finally, just to give you a sense how simple it is, I just borrowed a thermometer. I just walked in and the teacher said, okay, how do you kill hot and how do you kill cold? And I just showed the thermometer, whatever it was, 99 degrees, period. Do you see what I'm getting at? Is it so hot that the brain is now, uh, you, uh, you know, for my sake, go like, you know, more animated. <laughs> you know, just out of compassion. Hot for me too. Okay, so everyone got it. It's a brilliant teaching. Very, you know, it's going to make the difference for the rest of your summer. Okay. What? And winter. I forgot about that. Yes. Okay. Um, let's talk about your practice. Dharma talks are not so much about information, although that plays a role too, especially when you're new. That is, step number one, step number one is knowledge. Just what are these teachings? Uh, what are they about? Where are they, what are they directed towards? What are they attempting to characterize and accomplish? And it also would include methods, but these would be not the doing of the methods or practices, but words about it. The second stage would be you reflect on what you heard, and if something's not clear, you ask questions. Maybe if it's a practice, you try it, and then you ask questions. And of course, the third is the crown jewel, which is actual meditation, where you test what's being talked about and see if you can confirm it with your actual experience. So any of those three levels are fine because as I look around, we have people who've been practicing for some time and some of you are really new. Uh, no question is trivial or unimportant. Uh, it needn't be a question. It's just something that we can talk over together. But if it's a question, uh, I'll do my best. Please. Right. You're okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, if you stay with this practice, uh, yes. I mean, not literally and exactly in the words you used it, but sometimes it will feel as if the body falls away altogether. Sometimes it's transparent. Sometimes it will feel as if the body weighs 10 tons. Uh, the perception uh, will get modified, and if you keep up with this practice, a lot of what's coming out, of course, is coming from the mind. And there'll be some uh, unusual visitors who come. Uh, the practice, of course, is learning how to greet them, to see very clearly into them, and to let them go their own way when their time comes to go. Um, let me ask you this. When it happened, did you worry, or were you frightened? Um, I was just frightened here in the company of other people, but I think that when I had been trying to sit alone, yes. that when I had approached that point, there had been anxiety. Right. Crossing into what? Oh, it's just as you begin to feel that you cut it off? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's common. We like the good stuff, and we don't like the bad stuff, in quotes. But meditation, finally, is really not about getting good experiences. Those of you who are new, uh, that might be a little disappointing. Getting great mind states. Uh, even though we do cultivate calmness and so forth, finally, uh, it's a, a simple, profound, and 
not such an easy idea to learn, to, to put into practice. It's learning how to be with what's there, with what's, what's, what is happening to you in the moment, without grasping at it or pushing it away. And so, if that comes up, let's say the anguish or anxiety comes up, if you can, if you feel ready for it, and I, I don't mean to rush you into it, but if you feel ready for it, then that anxiety is not interfering with your practice. That anxiety is the practice. So let's say, you know, it wasn't terror. It doesn't sound like it was a big fear, but let's say a small fear. How would you put it in your words? Medium. Medium fear. <laughs> okay. Okay, so then you hear someone, uh, as I just did, say uh, you practice with the fear itself. How do you do that? Um, it's not the word F-E-A-R which can stimulate all kinds of notions in the mind uh, quite cut off from what's actually happening, uh, just thoughts. It's taking a look at what is actually happening that enables you to use that designation fear. Uh, a good place to start would be the body. There'll probably be some sensations in the body, uh, and can you observe them? Anything that happens to the mind must express itself in the body. The body, though, is more accessible, certainly at the beginning, for most people. Later on, you would look at the more subtle realms, that particular emotion. If you can do it now, by all means. And there's the breath that's there to help steady you, to help, uh, help keep you there. Now, if you back off from it uh, without examining it or talking it over as you're doing, I think, wisely with someone, what can happen is you... Uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You limit your practice. You'll never get beyond that degree of, let's say, concentration. Was your mind beginning to get a bit concentrated? Um, Just prior to that? I would say so. It happened so transparently, I would say. My mind was actually quite distracted. I see. I realized I was in this unexpected state. Yes. Sometimes it comes upon us. Um, the, the art that we're learning is how to be aware of what's there, simply because it is there. Uh, I, when, when I first began to meditate, I heard instructions over and over again, and I was working so hard to do them that I never quite did it right. And then the bell rang once, so I wasn't officially meditating. And then there it was. I mean, there was a few moments of real awareness, and I saw, saw what that felt like. And then it became easier uh, to do it, not for it to happen just accidentally, in a sense. Um, but uh, my suggestion would be uh, is to examine what's happening to you, but no, it's, it's nothing to really, it doesn't sound like there's anything to be frightened of, uh, and it is quite uh, typical, actually. Yeah. How does that answer suit you? Is it reassuring, or do you feel... No, it suits you very well. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Please. This practice is not about detachment. No, no, it's an important term because it's, it's often thought of as detachment. Uh, observation or awareness or mindfulness is participant observation. Quite different than detachment where you kind of pull back, which is there can be a, a struggle there of that which you're looking at and then that separate, which is coping with it or putting up with it or looking at it from, from what is perceived to be a safe angle. Uh, participant observation is, is quite different. It's opening up to the experience and allowing the experience to be there 
only not getting lost in it. Yeah, just being aware of it, uh, you're allowing it in. Intimacy is an Im- intimacy with your experience is the cutting edge of the practice. It's a, a Dogen, a very great Japanese teacher, when asked what is the awakened mind, said simply to be intimate with all things, starting with yourself. But uh, things like you're asking something else as well, intentionally trying to feel certain emotions. Well, no, I mean I, I'd rather experience the emotions or be in it in the sense of what's happening. But is it also useful to just detach and observe your thoughts in a way that is not Wait, no, that are not what? Where you're not involved in it, but intimate with it too. Yeah, I can only tell you what uh, I, my understanding of this practice. There are many, many things you can do. I'm not saying don't do them. Right. Uh, in this practice, um, it's not about cutting off your emotions at all. Uh, but let's let's look at it this way. Typically, what we all have emotions. Meditators are not. If you're human, you have emotions. And typically, uh, when we have an emotion, especially a strong one, we either deny it, repress it in some form, avoid it, or we get totally lost in it. We drown in it. We're totally identified with it. So let's say here would be, over here would be denial, and over here would be uh, getting lost in it, uh, full identification. The practice is right in here, in the middle. We learn how to allow the emotion to be there, and we receive it. I would say that the direction the practice goes in is to enlarge our capacity to receive our own experience. And emotions would be an important part of our experience. Uh, It's not easy to do because we tend to identify with emotions much more than, let's say, with a thought or with bodily conditions. Everyone's different. But so in principle, it's not about detaching from or uh, trying to do anything to. It's allowing the emotion to fully tell its story, only you meet it in a rather different way. Please. You know what it was? You know what it was? It was this. It was this. No, in a a few places the Buddha refers to this can mean the experience of an... Throw away names for the moment. See, uh, what's happening is you have to be careful not to get lost in names to find the proper name for what your experience was. Of course, there are words for the different experiences. I'm not denying that. But most important is to learn how to how to be with it, because uh, just listening to you, I don't know, I, my answer is, has to be qualified. Uh, are you making up some term, the universe? Does it feel spacious? In other words, if you could describe it, can you describe it in even more simple, even simple-minded, concrete terms? It, it felt like it was coming into every pore of my body. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Buddha used the term for this for the most ordinary, let's say, just experiencing in-breath, but not the word in-breath, not respiration, just what it was, and also for the experience of awakening. And it's always going to be like that. We'll, we have language and thoughts about what's happening to us, but what's happening to us is, I'm not going to use a word for it, uh, but certainly what you describe, a kind of a, I have to use words now, to talk so we can talk. It sounded like it was a feeling, first of all, uh, tell me what it felt like after it was over. Um, like I said, I was, it was Yes. Okay. This meaning what? This practice? This practice. Yes, but has it come back? No. I'm waiting for it. So uh, the more you wait, the more suffering. See, okay. Do you, do you mind if I uh, use your your uh, your uh, questions because it's it's it gets at a very very important point. Uh, if you keep doing this practice, you'll have experiences that are spacious and silence that is beyond words and uh, enriches life. Of course, we do it for that reason. But the heart of the practice is to keep a mind that doesn't grasp or cling. It's not about any particular experience. and It's the hardest thing to learn what I'm saying right now, and it's definitely the hardest thing to teach because we all want good experiences. We want peaceful ones. We want, you use the word epiphany, whatever that means to you. We want rapture. We want feelings of incredible kindness and compassion, feeling for the entire universe. But then, what happens when we feel bored? What happens when we feel angry? What happens when we feel frustrated? This particular practice is about the full scope of what it means to be a human being. From this point of view, they're all equally valuable. See, what, what I meant by enlarging our capacity to receive our experience, you'd be happy to receive that one again, wouldn't you? <laughs> You're right. Okay, but it doesn't seem to come on demand, does it? Yeah. The more you want it, the, the less likely. Not only that, it never will come back in exactly that way. I don't mean that there won't be wonderful experiences, but it won't be exactly that way. Life isn't that way. Life is constantly... You see what I'm getting at? Okay, so the, the art would be uh, fully uh, be intimate with it when it happened. It sounds like you were. And derive the full pr benefit. It, it sounds like it inspired you, right? Okay, and then you said, this is for me. This Vipassana stuff is for me. But what happens if you go for a couple of weeks and it doesn't come back? You'd be over to Zen. Maybe they have it. <laughs> Then TM, make the rounds. Cambridge, you can, you can spend the next 10 years. <laughs> but all of the Buddhist teaching, at any rate, I, I can't say for all, the word meditation is such, used so broadly now. Uh, all of it, whether it's Tibetan Zen or here, those are the main teachings in town. Um, the essence of it that everyone agrees on is that mind that uh, is not grasping or pushing away. Now, that's what takes you to liberation. This is about getting free, not about having good experiences. It's not a new fix to get. Of course, some good experiences come along the way. 
they're invaluable because it inspires you and gives you energy to practice. But what? You what? Okay, but if you attach to any particular outcome, you will suffer, and then even that's okay because if you can learn from it, any time you grasp, if you crave something, and you simply must have it and want it, and you don't get it, which is at least sometimes. Okay, good. That's different. I certainly. Okay, then you're not suffering. No. Yeah, you see, the whole the whole art is to fully experience what's there, and then when it's gone, to let it go. What else are you going to do? I'm satisfied with what it is. Great. Yeah. I think you should continue the talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there yet. I'm not anyone there. Yeah. Be sure. it to cyberspace but <laughs> it's but but you're fortunate you did you no I think so leave her alone it's not I uh, you know I've been down that road I think we all have it doesn't work it doesn't work but you know there's other help on the way in fact it's here um, there's a very fine book uh, called My, uh, Mindfulness in Meditation. It's by B what? In plain English, by Bhante Gunaratna, a Sri Lankan monk. And um, the, uh, he really goes to great pains, and it's just I extraordinarily clear about what this mindfulness stuff is. But let me just give you the gist of it, some of it, and then it would be a useful book to read. And if, you, if your daughter shows some interest, uh, then this wouldn't be a bad book for her to read. I think I there's too much in my book, 16 Tetra. You know, drive her crazy. Okay. 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 Um, let's talk. Mindfulness, first of all, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's preconceptual. It's not an idea. Okay. It's more like a clear mirror. It just sees what's there. Mindfulness only happens in the present time. It's, that's the only time it can ever happen. 
mindfulness as a mirror is not for or against what it sees, real mindfulness. It just, here, the, the, mir the mirror shows the palm of my hand. I turn it around, it shows the back of my hand. I take this away, it shows you, Brad. Okay, so we're developing a quality. It's already there. Everyone has it. If you're human, as w we have this unique ability as we live out our life, all of us are living out our life, we also have the capacity to be sensitive to what that experience of living out our life is. So we already have the mindfulness. It's not like uh, you, you picked it up here at CIMC. What the Buddha is teaching us how to do is how to develop it, refine it, apply it, so that it becomes extraordinarily, like, really clear, like an electronic microscope if you need to go small, and like a telescope if you need to go big. And we have that capacity, and it's like any other art. If you practice it, it gets refined, and it's all about clear seeing. So it's non-conceptual, you know, it's before, it's not for or against, it only happens now, and uh, it's reflective, it just, it shows what's there. And it turns out that that's very, very useful. One of the main things it shows is that everything that arises passes away. And to read the book, it's useful. Oh, good. Good. Okay, you sound, you sound fine. Uh, you know, about your daughter, though. I mean, there is really, many of us have really learned this one time. I learned it with my parents. Uh, don't peddle Buddhism. Be a Buddha. It's, it's, qu it's quite a difference. Uh, don't convince her of anything. Don't feel she's got to join. Oh, that's right. Okay. Good. Well, you know, there are other books that, uh, you know, are, have less Buddhism with a capital B in it. And that might be more appropriate for John Kabat-Zinn's work. Yeah, uh, and Bhante Gunaratna's book is a, a very, very useful introduction that might help her. Yeah, but it sounds like you're doing fine. Yeah, yeah. Please. Yes, uh, that too, of course. But uh, here's, um, if you, in the Buddhist teaching, uh, th this comes up all the time because people will start and they hear this teaching and then people become absolute about it. And they'll say, oh my God, I really like this stuff. Like, you're getting attached to the practice. You better not do that. You better stop. I wouldn't worry about that, no. Let that attachment not only be there, but let it get stronger. The time will come where, in a sense, you let go of that to move to an even more refined place. But if you let, for example, people hear about, it's uh, about seeing through the suffering that is caused by ego attachment, this self, this preoccupation we have with ourselves. And so from day one, you want to let go of it, or you feel, well, the only reason I'm coming to this meditation is is to satisfy the ego. I want to be calm. I want to have a calm. I want to. I want to be calmer. I want to be more clear. I. 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 Don't be too hard on yourself. You, you have to start somewhere. You can't lift yourself up by your own 
bootstraps. And so whatever energy gets you here, not, I don't mean literally CMC, gets you to meditate, gets you to the cushion, gets you to, to look at yourself, to me is useful. Then the time comes when that, uh, in a sense, it self-destructs, or you see the need for, uh, it, there's something about it now that's actually holding you back. And so at a certain point, um, there's, there is a practice called the practice of no practice, where finally, but you don't do that on day one, where finally uh, all the techniques and methods and even the teachings of the Buddha give you a headache. You know, they can't. Now, it doesn't mean they're bad because they may have gotten you to a place that's extraordinary in life. It's just that uh, they're vehicles, they're crutches, they're water wings, they're, they're training wheels, they're things that we need to help us. Uh, Americans want to go right to, as soon as they find out, oh, there's a method that's just the method of no method, I want that right away. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It would like, be like putting a three-year-old on a Harley Davidson. They can't, they need five, whatever, they need a three-wheeler, for goodness sakes, you know. So I, I don't mean to be, it's all us. We, we, so, but eventually, uh, your point is well taken. And, but you don't have to be in a hurry to let go of it. So in the Buddhist teaching, he'll talk of, he's talked about this, where uh, certain kinds of attachments become more and more subtle. You let go of the more coarse ones over time, and then there are more subtle ones that you pick up, and then more subtle ones until finally even the teaching itself, even the teaching itself, which becomes attachment to views and opinions, uh, becomes a burden. But you don't throw something away until you have it. You know, we, we don't have it yet. We don't have any, like I hear people talking now, uh, see the Buddha, just kill the Buddha. You know, uh, if you, if you, they heard this teaching, if you meet the Buddha on the mountain, what you do? Kill the Buddha. Um, sounds good. Uh, but that's uh, actually quite an advanced practice. What it means is the concept of the Buddha. You don't, that's holding you back, but it may have, taking you quite a ways, you know, to help you be inspired and learn some things. Uh, and there's a, a process that's been followed by thousands over 2,500 years um, that makes some sense. And each one of us has to work with it in our own way. Um, we need the Buddha right now. And the day will come when uh, he'll just be, as one teacher ca called him, that golden-tongued blabbermouth. But right now, let's weigh his words with respect and use them. We need to hear some, some wise words. And later on, we might just, uh, we see the Buddha coming, we just want to get out of the way. He's going to start him with another sermon about how to live. Am I making any sense? Okay. The Buddha, this is the final on that, the Buddha has a famous image, which is when you, if you need a raft to get to the other shore, let's say, you take the raft and then you get to from one side of the shore to the other side. When you get to the shore, you don't run around carrying the raft on your back. You put it down. It got you to where you needed to go. Thank you very much. And now you don't have to cart it around anymore. It's something like that. Yeah. Please. Um, you know, I've been thinking about the practice of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Thinking. Thinking. 
There's no room anymore for painting, art, music, out. I don't know about that. I think uh, painters go through quite a bit of an ordeal and hard work based on what they have. I have some friends and so many things are scrapped until they get it right. But I, are you a writer? Yeah. Okay. There needn't be a problem. Uh, it, it has to do with knowing what you're doing. Uh, it's not that, uh, let's say even sometimes people will put it in terms of, does this mean I can never have a fantasy again? <laughs> um, you have to know when a fantasy is happening that it's happening, particularly if you're a literary person. Uh, some of these images that the mind produces are useful for you. Look, I use it too. When you, I, I, you know, I, I wrote something. I had to use thinking. It's not that thinking is bad, or your word was a fabrication. To create a world, let's say, uh, and let's say good art, uh, we know that the, the words are not it. The best novel is not life. It's about life. But somehow a really good one uh, really helps us go deeper into ourselves. Uh, let's say a, a great a Dostoevsky helps us understand ourselves a lot better, etc. Uh, so there's a place for thinking. Thinking actually is quite a magnificent human function. Uh, the problem is, to begin with, we're enslaved to thinking. And we worship thinking. We uh, have given tr tremendous authority to thinking, and we equate thinking with life itself often. And it's unexamined, so that thinking is doing us. Thinking is telling us what the world is and we think we're seeing the world. So that has produced tremendous suffering. People kill each other over different thoughts, ideologies, and ethnic, you know, it's pretty obvious. But now here you are, a writer and a meditator. Um, there have been many writers and meditators. Uh, when you practice, when you meditate, just that means, let's say when you sit, thoughts that come up, uh, you don't start writing while you're sitting. Now, even there, there are exceptions. Now and then, some, a creative burst comes, and no one's saying, stamp that out. You know, you're not going to do it anyway. You know, you're going to probably write it down or make a note in the corner of your mind. But by and large, what is it you're doing in the given moment? Uh, and if it's, let's say, sitting and, and being with the breathing, if that's your practice in that moment, then that's not a time to be writing your novel or, or whatever kind of writing you do. But let's say when you sit down to write a novel, meditation can help you. For example, you start to write, and it's very common among writers that there's a blockage, right? Suddenly you're dry, nothing comes, and you panic, or you get discouraged, or even depressed. Those are good moments to practice. Uh, you don't have to jump to, onto a cushion. Just stay right at your computer, if that's how you write, and just be with what, what's happening right there. Uh, as you learn how to do that, you take the power out of it, it tends to fall away, and actually you have a fresh energy that comes from not attaching to the uh, apprehension or the fear or the disappointment or the discouragement. When it falls away, there's a kind of um, vitality that comes in its wake from the letting go, from seeing through it. And then you then approach what your writing is with a fresh mind. Uh, it's quite commonplace, people who've been sitting for a while and doing writing of one sort or another, 
uh, who've uh, talked to me about it, and I know it in a small way for myself, when the mind learns how to get really silent, that means no thoughts, but you're not in dreamland, you're not, you're really quite, it's a, it's another dimension that most of us don't even know exists, but it's, it's accessible, it's available. The, the method is to take you there. Okay, <clears throat> resting in that silence uh, something happens in that silence. It's not dead. Uh, it's highly charged, very subtle form of life. And then when you come out of that, you may find that your writing is different. It's inspired, or you're painting, or sculpting, or dancing, or whatever your art form is. Uh, so it's not one versus the other. It's um, keep your practice strong, and when it's time to write, just write. And when it's time to sit, just sit. D do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, then you're not meditating anymore. Okay, but you know, even those of us who are not writers do that. We just, just it's not as it's not as well turned a phrase. <laughs> you know. Do you think it's impossible? Yes. I would use the, the word difficult would be more accurate. Impossible, not at all. Uh, it goes something like this. It's different for each person, of course. In general, thought is a very, very subtle little package of energy. And it has immense power, which we give it. That's why it has the power. It's just a thought. It's just blah, blah, blah even the, the most refined, brilliant thought. It's just a thought. But we give it energy over ourselves, and we've been doing that for a long time. So it's very powerfully conditioned. Uh, and then you hear someone say, well, just be mindful of thinking when it happens. And you try to do it, and you can't. So what you're, what you're saying is accurate, certainly. I think anyone who meditates knows exactly what you're talking about. It's a bit like this. Uh, you know, the, the image... Um, a train of thought. You've heard, you know, it's a, in the culture we use that phrase. So let's say you're on the platform. Awareness is on the platform. The image may break down, but it's, it might be a little bit of some help. So and a train comes in. A uh, train of thought comes in. Don't get on the train. Of course, typically what happens, and that's why you're saying it's difficult, the train comes in, and before we know it, we're heading someplace. We may not even be where we want to go, but there we are on the train. And then uh, with practice, you wake up. Suddenly you're two miles out of the station, and you jump off, you know, like in the movies. You don't get, you know, <laughs> I don't know if real people ever do it, but uh, it seems like stunt, stunt people know how to do it. Okay, so, and then you come back to this. With time, the train pulls up, high there, and you don't get on. Now, it's not impossible. It comes with practice. The reason... Uh, one reason it's so difficult is thought is such a subtle form of energy. As you put it, it's correct. The body is much more coarse, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, just descriptively. More accessible, more available. The breath is. 
uh, a mood is, an emotion, a thought, you know, they're like that. And we've had so much practice giving them power, which then uh, comes back on us, that little by little, for example, two things can help you, at least two. One is begin to understand the nature of thought. Just what is a thought when it happens? Begin to see that thoughts are actually quite limited. They're, uh, it's like skywriting, you know, drink garlic's milk, you know. Uh, maybe there's some people who get very passionate about it, you know, and start crying, garlic's milk, I love that milk. <laughs> but most of us just watch it go through the sky and we don't even, we don't even finish, you know, we glance and we go on to something else. Thoughts are like, they're just stuff that goes through, they come and go, they're quite insubstantial. Now, you may, they may not feel that way now, but their power is like they cast a spell over us. You know, and, they, and that's what you're saying. I'm putting a different uh, language out. Uh, that is, we turn to be aware of it and suddenly we're enveloped in it. Isn't it something like that? In other words, you don't look for trouble. <laughs> Well, no, 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 okay, but, yeah, no, um, but you see, what, uh, let me extract a little bit of wisdom from what you just said, it's wiser than you know. Let's say thoughts come through the mind, and those of you who practice for a while, tell me if I'm just uh, ranting and raving. Uh, you, you, uh, let's say mindfulness is directed at thinking and it just falls apart. Uh, you, let's say if sentences start out, they're just a bunch, no sentence finishes, a bunch of broken words, you know, sort of like every fourth word and makes no sense because awareness touches it and, and suddenly the mind is, there's no thought. That's what you're getting at. Okay. The reason that happens, thoughts are, are really not that substantial. That's what I've been trying to say. When they get burned up in that flame of attention. Now, when you aim awareness at a physical pain, awareness is an energy. The more you practice it, m the more refined and subtle that energy becomes. And when, when awareness touches physical pain, doesn't that change too, at least sometimes? Yes, okay, that's all right. But let's not uh, make it a, a fighting kind of thing. Whatever mindfulness touches, uh, it affects it. Mindfulness, if you try to use mindfulness to get a result, then it's not really mindfulness, to get back to what you were taught. If you're using mindfulness to get somewhere with it, it's no longer, a corner of the mind is too goal-oriented. It's trying to get somewhere. So you're not fully attentive. Okay. So thoughts, when you direct awareness to them, fall away. Now, as you get really good at that, that's a direct, a direct highway into silence. The thoughts fall away, fall away, and finally, you're looking at the source of where thoughts come out of and where they go back to. But that's the direction the practice is going in. Do you see what I'm getting at? So it's not a problem, but uh, often people uh, thinking is so much, so much authority has been given to thinking that unless we can understand, like, do you re regret that you didn't get to know what the thought was trying to tell you? Good. <laughs> then you'd be on the express train. But there's some people who need to know, well, but what was it trying to think? You know, it's sort of like a compulsion to know. It's like being a yenta, you know what that means? Like, uh, but about your own mind. You've got to know all of your own business. And then it's like, he, he likes this and she likes that. I don't know. Well, I missed that one. What, 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 I like who? Who do I like? What, you know, you know uh, and if, but after a while, that becomes, what's the point? It's just such a waste of energy. 
So what you're saying now is a little different than when I was directing my... Well, you're still not satisfied, though. Well, there's another point. Okay. Yes. No, uh, uh, you see, um, <coughs> the, practice, uh, when, uh, the practice is whatever it is you're doing to really do it. If you're filling out your taxes, I would hope that you would totally concentrate on the figures. If you're writing, I would hope that you really are writing. It's, uh, it's not that you uh, sort of have to have someone over here watching you write or add up the figures. It's that there's uh, undivided attention in it. Now, with practice, what does happen, in fact, you probably have had this, as writers definitely have this, there are moments when there's such an absorption in the writing that there is no ego. It's, it feels as if the writing is coming out of you. It's, be, it's writing itself. And those are some of the best creative moments. Well, they happen not only in artistic creativity, but suddenly a burst of brilliance where some thoughts start becoming very, very clear. The mind is, is quite smart. But I think you're holding yourself to an unnecessary standard of sort of being uh, mindful of this process while it's happening. But you see, you're as awake. You see, to really, to really write in the way in which I'm describing it, you are awake. You know that what is happening now is, is writing. Well, it's, it's a bit like this. Someone... Uh, took one of our practice groups some years ago who was a, a city planner and he loved, he was like you, he found his home, Vipassana, all that, you know. He, he f and then at the end of it, it was like a 10 week and he said, he was so sad. I said, what's the problem? It seemed like you had a, you really, this practice has been helping you. And he said, well, yes, but now I'm a city planner. That's my work. And you keep saying, you know, it's not about the future. There's no future. There's no past. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> so the teachings have to be, uh, it's not double talk, it's that when you're, if you're a city planner, when the time comes to plan, by all means plan, but know that that's what you're doing. The problem isn't that you can never think about a future, there'll be no envisioning of a future permitted in meditative circles, and there's no past, there's no memory, we're not allowed to remember what happened, that's over with. It's just now, a kind of new kind of thought fascism, you know, a mind <laughs> fascism. Uh, it's not so much that. It's that when, let's say, you're doing future, let's say you're envisioning for a reason, uh, you know that that's what you're doing. You're not lost in what you're doing. When you're uh, reflecting on something that happened in the past, you know that, what you, that that's what you're doing. When you're writing, you know that you're writing. It's not that you're, d you're fully in that activity. There's alertness, there's attentiveness, and there's a giving over of your best to it. It's not that you're pull, pulling back and detached from it. Does that make any sense? You were holding yourself, I think, to too hard a burden. I don't think it would, I think it would be very, very hard for you to do what you're... Uh, I mean, I understand you're taking it from the general instructions. Uh, but mindfulness is still there, and that's where, as you keep practicing, and let's say you're writing, and you've been practicing mindfulness over and over and over and over again, uh, you, it starts to become more natural, more of a reflex. 
and accompanies you without kind of intentionally deciding, I'm going to be mindful now. It's just there. And so let's say you run into something, uh, some knot, some way in which you can't solve the problem. And I'm just taking a typical one that all of us run into, and there's anxiety and fear. I don't know what the answer is to this. I can't seem to learn this. And certainly, uh, suddenly this happens. More and more, the mindfulness will be your friend. It will come right in there, and you'll know to look at in the body, or however, however you c you're able to do it, uh, what's happened, and then as it weakens and falls away, you get back to what is it that you're doing. There's a simple teaching that goes back to ancient times. When you walk, walk. When you sit, sit. Never wobble. So when you're writing, <laughs> write. You know, when you're, do, do you see what I'm getting at? I don't think so. I mean, you're, you're not, uh, it's the best I can do. Yeah. Please. Um, I was just going to give you some guidance. I went on retreat at the end of the month um, for a Dharma retreat. And um, I'm just so taken aback by my reaction to it. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to give anything to anybody. And like, oh, the, the and idea of Dharma, you mean? Yeah. Of giving? I, I want to be able to use this process as part of, like, not just walk around in a snit until I go to the retreat. Like, I want to... <laughs> I want to use this, like, why is this happening, and what, and, and use it okay. mindfully. Yes, I understand. Yeah. Let's start right where you began, that you have some resistance to this Donna stuff. Yes. Okay, let's start there. The ideal is that we're all saints in training, right? We just, we give, you know, uh, everything. Here, take my house, you don't have a house, my car, my, my husband, wife, you know. Um, what, so start off, you're stingy. Let's face it. <laughs> you can't help it. You're just stingy. You came out that way. And self-centered and self-preoccupied. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> Nothing personal. I, I'm, I'm saying it for a point. You start where you are. And where you are, you feel that resistance. Well, I don't want to give the... I work hard for my money. Uh, I don't know what you know better than I do. It, it, in other words, don't be in a hurry to do an impersonation of being a saint or being this generous person. Start where you are, and where you are is for whatever reason. I don't mean that it's not good, that you have resistance to Donna. You're being honest. I think it takes great courage at a place like this to get up in front of all these people and say that I hate to give. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. It's a hot night, and I'm somewhat <laughs> delirious. <Yeah. laughs> I did say I was very taken aback by it. No, yeah. it's, not, it's not me. It's not who I like. I was really excited about it, and I'm so taken aback by this reaction. I'm like, but obviously, there's part of me somewhere. Yes, but you see, the training really is training in honesty. Yeah. And look, uh, Donna, it's, it sounds nice, you know, to freely give to someone else. You know, you, you know what the concept is, uh -huh. right? So I don't have to explain it. But uh, it's a lifetime of purification for real Donna. Real Donna, there's no giver, and there's no one you're giving it to. Uh, and that's not where we begin. We begin as a giver, sort of like, I'm uh, going to give this teacher, this is what, a weekend with Bhante Gunaratna? Yes. Okay, good. You're using, he's a wonderful person and teacher. Um, and let's say uh, the idea would be, uh, oh, he's a monk, and I'm uh, giving him all of this. I'm, I'm paying for him. Because the teachers at IMS don't get anything other than the dana, you know that. Uh -huh. the, 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 the teachers get what you give them. Mm -hmm. 
you pay for your food and you know board and, uh, for the weekend. Okay, that sounds very very nice and ideal, and you read it in books and you hear people talk about it, and suddenly you feel contraction about that, that you don't really feel totally good about it. You put use the word a twit or whatever it was. Okay, that's wh that's a good place to practice because it's a fact. Do you see what I mean? Uh, in sp spiritual circles are. We're drowning in idealism. It's one of the biggest obstacles to real development is idealism. I don't know, that may sound, I'm not advocating cynicism. Uh, what, what it is is that uh, if the idealism is really strong, uh, we set up a notion as to who it is we want to be, and then we try to be that. Let's say, I'll give you the, most, uh, the example I know best, the anti-war movement, which I participated in. The name itself gives it away. We were anti-war. Uh, there was more. There was so much violence in those meetings about what the right way to do it, how to protest. Okay, you can't to be really be successful. Uh, we were all at war ourselves, with ourselves, with each other. Step number one would be: Can you even be at peace with yourself? You want the world to be at peace, and you can't even be at peace with yourself, just alone in the room. You're at war with yourself. Now you come with people, all of whom are your friends and who share your value, but war is no good, and you're even with them, you're at each other's throats. So you got a picture of Gandhi over your bed. I'm being personal now. When I was growing up, I did. And I found when I was in the army that I liked a lot of that stuff, crawling on the ground with my machine gun and getting a little bang, 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 and getting a little medal for it. It was like being a kid again. And then I saw it, and I was revolted by it, but, I had to, but the starting point was that I liked it. And then I was revolted by what was coming out of me. I was just a normal American kid, you know, who liked that stuff. Okay, so it's good. What you were saying is good because it's true. If that's what's there, uh, practice is always going to be like that. I'm not saying don't have any ideals, but what can happen is people drown in their ideals and they never deal with what's underneath it. Uh, the ideal just takes you to the surface, the conscious level, whereas really we have to go much deeper to the unconscious level where you could be officially... Uh, take what happened with Gandhi. It's a wonderful example of it. It's been well documented. Gandhi did a lot of work on himself. Tremendous. A lifetime of deep inner work. And he could t lead an entire nation to be nonviolent and to kick the British out. Okay. As soon as he was assassinated, there was a bloodbath. Because most of the people were not at his level. They were held together by his power, his moral strength. Okay. They had not done the same degree of inner work. Do you see what I'm getting at? So you're off to a good start. If you can not be judgmental about discovering, oh my goodness, I'm not too comfortable with this Donna idea. And it's, all you have to do is just gently slip in under it and be aware of it and let it, let it be, let it happen. Do you see what I'm getting at? That's good practice. It isn't just always getting peace. And the quality of being able to face your demons or stuff that you don't approve of officially, that's... Uh, what I was saying, I think I've said it more than once tonight, the ability to enlarge your capacity to receive your own experience. I think many of us, including myself, might have a hard time receiving. If I saw, you know, I don't really want to give to, you know, I think quickly I'd find a way around that or over it. And suddenly a very nice impulse with wallpaper over it. Uh, but for practice to go deep, you have to look at what is. Just the way things, Dharma means the way things are. And if you can, it's a good habit to get into. I gather you're pretty early in your practice, or, or no? 
yeah, that's relatively new. But that's, that's, uh, don't throw this one out. Practice with it. Good, good. No, and I, I meant what I said. I think it was courageous of you to bring that up here. No? Yes. Okay. I have observed in myself over the last couple of years an increasing resistance to going to meetings. Now, this is something I've done all of my professional life. And, you know, I have all these nice causes, you know, make the world a better place, you know, you know reduce, reduce carbon emissions, you know, all these things that, you know, that I'm supposed to be doing, but they all seem to require meetings. What's the behavior? I'm avoiding these meetings. Ah, <laughs> I know that one well. <laughs> yes. You know, I'm supposed to be going to, and, and I don't. And I've actually dropped out of some organizations that I, that I feel are very worthy ones just because I have such resistance to, you know, what goes on in the meetings, um, my ex, you know, my ex, and I see all of this. Yes. Um, but at the same time, it's translating into behavior, which I'm not sure is very useful. I understand. Sometimes the resistance would have wisdom in it, and it's really, you've used that one up, it's over. And it, it's time to move on from that, whatever it is, in this case, what you're talking about. At other times, um, you can't move on. Let me give you an example. If you think, to make a center like this run, Michael, Narayan, and I are the, the three people who do the teaching here. We have meetings. We have a lot of meetings. To get this uh, building renovated, uh, it, it nearly killed us. We, I mean, we had to have meetings uh, so often with the architects, with the builders, with this, with that, going to City Hall, and even without that, uh, in order to run a center. I hate meetings. I always have. I mean, it's not new for me. I can't stand them. Uh, I, the thing I'm most allergic to is Buddhist conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more boring than a Buddhist conference. Uh, okay. So, but now let's come back to CIMC. Uh, so sometimes it's a blend of reflection plus observation. And I've looked at some of my resistance, and Michael and Ryan and I have talked it over. I don't think they'll mind me sharing it because it's, you know, it's right to your point. Uh, and fortunately, the three of us know that. We, we would like to have, we'd like to use our energies in different ways. Um, and so we're trying to, is there a way of having fewer meetings but not affecting the quality of, of care for CIMC? And so we're examining it. Of course, we ha we're starting to find ways that we can have fewer meetings. But then you get to a point where, no, these meetings do have to happen. If you want a place to really work, you've got to be up to date. You've got to know what's going on. You've got to know what the yogis are. You know, it just, and so there, sometimes you have to, you feel the resistance. I, we just had one Tuesday, 
And I felt the resistance. It was sort of our meetings at 10.30, and I lived two blocks away, and suddenly, you know, I could feel, you know, a stranglehold on my neck, you know, sort of like, I'd rather do anything than that. And so I, my starting point was not to overpower the resistance, you know, and march dutifully to CIMC on behalf of serving the Dharma. <laughs> uh, but I started, uh, what? Who said thank you? Oh, okay. Okay, so uh, I, I looked at the resistance and uh, acknowledged the fact that this is not something, to be honest with you, I don't want to do it. It's like what you were saying. But then uh, you'd say it translates into behavior. And then it got weaker, and I stood there, and then, but then the reflection was, it's a bit like, you know, often you have to do a lot of things in life you don't want. I, parenting is something, the parents love everything they have to do, I'm sure they don't. But they do it because they love their children, you know. So um, I c could say we love the center, and we, we want the center to be a good place for all of us to practice. And so sometimes, uh, you know, we swallow hard, and then we go to the meeting anyway. Uh, so it's sort of no one solution. It may be that certain kinds of those meetings are over for you. You're never going to do them again. And if you, even if you examine them, you realize it's all right, you know, that you could use your energy a lot better for some other. And then some of them you may conclude that, um, not from an egotistical point of view, like how important you are, but you may conclude it's really necessary to go to this one, you know, and that then how to skillfully uh, come from the resistance to getting to the meeting without it being uh, brutal. So you're not brutalizing yourself, marching yourself, you know, overpowering yourself with just sheer will. And for me, just as one time anyway, it was a combination of seeing into the resistance, which was quite strong, and then it thinned out, and then reflecting on what it is we had to do for that hour and a half on Tuesday, and knowing full well that uh, it's important, there's no one else who can do it, we have to do it, and then somehow it just fell away and I went, and actually the meeting was, was okay. So uh, there's no pat answer. Uh, so sometimes the resistance has wisdom in it. And uh, no matter how, you see that you do have to do it, even though there's resistance. And at other times it's telling you it's not necessary anymore. But I, you know, I can't go beyond that. It's too personal. It's for you from here on in. Yeah. Please. Finding that I listen to at work okay. about work. Yes. And I had this experience of hearing people whine and saying, not whining, just work, but the experience was your kill hop. It was, you know, kill the whining, kill the concept of work, and just do the, do the task. Because the task itself is not that unpleasant. It's all the Stuff to bring along with it. That's right. Okay, but you have to be careful that you don't start whining about the whiners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. Good, because we tend to, nothing personal, we tend to favor ourselves. Have you noticed? <laughs> and so somehow the mind is like a brilliant defense lawyer and it has ways of finding everything out except a numero uno. Um, Okay, now, but let's go to that situation. I think you're quite right. Uh, let's say you have a job, and a job would be like going to a meeting or raising children or whatever. Uh, and instead of whining, why not examine what that's all about? Uh, because you're going to do it anyway, probably. 
So you have a choice. You can do it dragging your feet, exhausting yourself, and, ev and bringing everyone else down, making work drudgery and all the rest of it, or um, in examining it, and that would start with, no, let's say for a whiner, let's say one of the whiners would start to meditate. They would have to look at their whining and see, well, what does this accomplish? Shift back to selfishness. I, I was just kidding before. But let's say you, people do find that they, are, they just want to preserve everything and they don't like to give. And it really is not about you. Um, when you look at it, the reason to be generous is not necessarily because Buddha said so or Jesus said so. Uh, a self-centered, selfish life doesn't work out to be all that happy. It turns out you isolate yourself, you, uh, you, uh, people uh, stay away from you, and then you wonder, I wonder why I'm so lonely. I have, you know, well, you've done it to yourself by protecting your resources and hoarding and all the rest of it, so that sometimes you break out of it because of wisdom. You realize this is just not a good way to live. Whereas when you share, when you find yourself able to give to people, you find love, material, love, whatever it is, you find that the quality of life improves. You're the, the greatest beneficiary of the generosity. But, th but it's something that you learn from your experience. It's not a should, because some wise person told you to do it. It's not a commandment. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? So to get back, this is similar. Yeah, it's, it's really the, the, the aha in that moment was understanding that the issue that I was having was my own aversion. Yes. To, to whining. To, to whining and sometimes to doing a particular kind of attack. Yes. And so then, you know, I could explore the aversion and figure out if, is there something about it that should change or is it just an emotion and let it go and do it. Okay. But you're, I get you're a practitioner, right? Okay. You're, you're, okay. Yeah. So you have certain resources that perhaps your fellow whiners don't have. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, if they want to climb, well, that's their energy. <laughs> okay. But uh, you will have to live in, in that atmosphere, and so you have to kind of uh, see how it's affecting you yeah. so that you can decontaminate, so you don't get contaminated by it. But let me leave you both with a, a general Dharma teaching for all of us, and then a particular example that comes from my experience with meditators who come to this center. <coughs> One is, uh, in addition to this hot Buddha, cold Buddha teaching, which try it, see if it doesn't make life a lot easier for you. Um, there's a, a teaching by a, uh, a Japanese Zen master named, named Dogen, uh, and it's uh, instructions to the cook. So on one level, it's, uh, he's giving instructions at this monastery as to how cooks should behave in this monastery. But it's really much deeper than that. It's about that but it also is how to cook your life. A lot, to make it short, a lot of what he's saying is that whatever ingredients you have, make the best meal that you can with it. That's practice, Dharma practice. So that for example, if you have lots of really good ingredients, loads of vegetables, organic, not uh, you know, modified uh, genetically, you know, just the, uh, you bought out bread and circus, you got everything, you know, and, and not only that, the emperor is coming with a full retinue and it's uh, celebratory. The monastery flags are flying and drums and chanting. It's a great event. Uh, so, of course, the cooks are all inspired. They've got great ingredients and they're making it for this entourage of important people and a wonderful meal comes out of it. And then the next day, the emperor is gone. Most of the good ingredients are gone. There's some wilted greens and a, a stale carrot. 
you know, and there you are in the same old dreary monks and nuns, you know, walk, coming in t uh, to, the, to eat. So you don't have the same interest. You don't have the same, and you just throw something together. Okay, Dharma teaching is to have respect for everything you do. Nothing is trivial or worthless, nothing. It's, a, it's essentially uh, learning how you're more alive when you live that way. It's not like being righteous or self-righteous. It's that in each moment, that's what your life is. If you're spending your life whining, you're the one who's losing because you're qualifying the quality of that life, your life, in that moment. Okay, so in this teaching, the next day, what you would do is you take a look at what ingredients you have. And there, this carrot and, you know, some wilted greens and some used rice, brown rice, of course. And you have all this stuff. It's not much. And the audience are the same old people that you've seen year in and year out. Uh, and of course, the last ingredient is the mind of the cook. And you see, well, what am I bringing to this meal? And you see that it's no enthusiasm. It's, let's just get this over with. There's nothing happening here. Uh, practice would be to slip out from under that and to make the very best meal you can with the ingredients that you have. Because that's what your life is in that moment. Do you see what, yeah. So, so it would improve work life for everyone if they had that simple teaching. But of course, you, ha to, you have to make it viable. You have to practice it. And you start off with resistances and not liking and whining and all the rest of it. And are you willing to take a look at that? Uh, a concrete example of it, which has happened a number of times to people that I've, uh, uh, you know, when you teach Dharma, one of the, uh, it's a certain way, it's a good fortune. It's, um, I feel very, the word blessed is overused. And when it's, some, it's anyway, it's, it's good fortune because people openly and sincerely share their lives with you. And so you kind of get a glimpse as to how other people are living. And uh, there are two kinds of experiences that have been shared to me from work. One, people who are waiters and waitresses, and one, taxi cab drivers. And I'm going to again make a composite. Essentially, what they're saying is, I'm not really a waiter or a waitress. I'm not really a cab driver. I'm a ballet dancer. I'm a writer. I'm a filmmaker. Well, how long have you been driving a cab? 20 years. You're a cab driver. Uh, who likes to write. I don't mean that in a negative sense. And then at first, the per this, this is a concrete of saying, uh, you've been doing this for 20 years, and you talk about it as if it's non-existent, and that who you really are is this worker, this writer. Okay. Uh, I think you have to acknowledge that this is a real chunk of your life that you're doing day in and day out. So then if we bring over that teaching of making the best meal you can, you have to reinvent being a cab driver. You kind of look into the situation and see if you can find a way of redefining what it means to drive so that you see there are actually some very useful, wonderful aspects of driving. It's a service. You're helping people often when they really need it. Um, sometimes they talk to you. You're like a priest. You know, you hear them on the way to the airport. They know they're never going to see you again, and they tell you some stuff that they feel better. And often they don't talk to you, but you get a glimpse of how other people live because you can't help but hear them in the back, etc., etc. However you do it is to, is to see if you can enliven it to make it something that is viable. The same with, let's say, waiting table. Uh, often it's a special time. People come uh, meet at, to eat, eat a meal together. Uh, you have a way of enhancing that situation. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? 
uh, so you, f you start looking for what's right about the situation and try to, uh, to emphasize that rather than um, getting fixated on one facet of life to the negation of everything else. The extreme example, if you have patience, and then we'll, we're all released from this bondage. Have you ever heard of the flying Willendas? Anyway, if you haven't, because the, the, uh, the main one is dead and the story's about how he died. Uh, they were tightrope walkers, a family of, they were uh, world famous. They would just walk way up there. And one night, some years ago, I turned on the news and I'm watching TV and there is Mr. Willenda, the head flying Willenda. And he scheduled, uh, it wasn't the news, it was some show about in, in South America somewhere. And he's supposed to, uh, or it was a f footage of it, I really don't remember. And he was advised not to do it because it was outdoors and there was this tremendous gale, tremendous wind. And, but he said, no, I'm going to do it. And you see him, I'm chomping on my you know, tofu and you know, organically grown tomato sandwich, whole grain bread. And, <laughs> uh, and there goes this Willenda walking and you see him blown to his death. Okay. Now, to back up a little, he made this famous statement, which is what practice is not. He said, all of life is waiting. The only thing that's real for me is when I'm on the high wire. Okay, now, uh, you think about it, we, we're not so different from him. For one person, it might be the piano or uh, tennis or, you know, we have our areas, photography or whatever it is, where we really are happy and we love to do it. But what about most of the life? Let, let's say, if you fall in love with meditation, uh, some people do, you know, uh, but most of your life is not going to be spent on the cushion. So are you going to become like the flying Willenda? The only time, oh, on retreats, so just send, put me in IMS, CIMC, you know, any place in, you know, with meditation pad and cushions and, you know, and I'm just a happy camper. And as soon as the retreat's over, all I can think about is how to get back to that next retreat, how to earn the money to get there. And all I talk about is, you know, like a combat ribbon, how that retreat was. And I sat for two weeks and uh, it was really hard. And, you know, um, in the meantime, life is, most of our time is spent cooking, taking out the garbage, talking, listening, crossing the street. Do you see what I'm, yeah. So uh, practice has a lot to do with that. It's not just sitting on the cushion. Please understand that, those of you who are new. And sitting on the cushion, learning how to do that, is also special. It's not special, and it is special. It's special because it's such a simplified human invention. You know, whoever, however this got invented. You have no other responsibility. You're not talking or eating or writing or phoning or watching. Or you're just stuck with yourself. The form is designed to utterly simplify your existence. So there you are with yourself. And we start off seemingly in an innocuous way with the breathing, but as those of you who come here know, it soon expands to well beyond the breathing to include your full experience. So it's a, a wonderful, brilliant invention uh, to help human beings. But if you get fixated on it, attached to it in some ultimate way, so that you, s you divorce it from the rest of your life, a la the flying Willenda, then uh, I don't know if you, what's been accomplished. You become like a hothouse plant, something like that. So, right.
face nine months into practice at home after the retreat, I looked back over the last six, eight, nine months, and what I realized was today my life's different than it was before I started this practice. This practice has value because I'm different. Yes. Right? And and my life feels better. Yeah. You know, my emotional state day by day is better. Right. That's what it's about. Yeah, so when it's time to sit, just sit. When it's time to write, just write. It's time to walk the high wire, walk the high wire. But not me. (laughs) Okay, could we have a few moments of silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. Thank you for your patience and attention and 